All right, so please turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. You're going to be looking at a really big section, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, all the way through the end of chapter 7. You can find it on page 531 and 532 in the Bibles there in the chairs. Uh, You're going to want to have that in front of you. Um, We're going to look at it regularly. Um, Now, this this text is two sections, all right? It's uh, chapter 6, verse 20 through 35, and then all of chapter 7. And they're broken up by those words, my son. That's a great way that the Proverbs divides those things. But I'm going to deal with them together because they deal with the same issue of adultery, okay? Now, originally, I had these glorious hopes that I would be able to get through this entire chapter and a half in one sermon. It was a lofty goal. Uh, It was a foolish goal. I'm not going to be able to do it. And so I'm going to break up the sermon, not the text, but the sermon into two parts, okay? Because I want to look at this theme, adultery, altogether. But I say that it's broken into two different sections because I want to be real clear on something here. This is not one conversation that Solomon, the father, had with his son about the dangers and allurements of adultery and sexual sin, but two separate conversations that he had with his son. This is big, right? One is about the destruction that adultery brings upon your life, and one is a story of the seduction of a foolish young man. Now, this is really, really important for us to consider because this is now the fourth time, the fourth time in seven chapters that the father has warned his son of the dangers of sexual sin, of the foolishness of sexual sin. We saw it in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, all of chapter 5, the second half of chapter 6, and all of chapter 7. That's a lot. That's a lot of time that he devotes to that issue. Though sexual sin promises us satisfaction, it promises us this rich and happy life, it ultimately destroys us. It's foolishness. And this is Solomon, who's writing almost 3,000 years ago, four times in seven chapters of the pervasive and overwhelming temptation toward sexual sin. And friends, so let that sink deeply into your mind. If you're questioning whether or not the Bible is relevant for you today, whether it speaks to your life and your situation, get this, because God is the same and man is the same. And though this is removed from us by 3,000 years, we see them dealing with the exact same issues that we face today. And this father is speaking to his son over and over and over and over. And over again, because it's that pervasive. It's that deadly. He wants us to consider just how deeply this can affect us. Maybe they didn't have Victoria's Secret in the mall. Maybe they didn't have the plethora of romantic movies and television shows that kind of skew our view of relationships. Maybe they didn't have an abundance of porn on the internet But their culture told them the same lies about love and about passion and about lust and about sex that our culture still tells us today. The same lies. Lies about beauty and body type and the necessity of irresistible animalistic physical attraction. Lies about how what how what feels so right couldn't possibly be wrong. Lies about that, that degrade love into cheap, dirty lust, and it perverts affection and admiration into infatuation and abuse. Lies about the necessity of white-hot, passionate, erotic sexual gratification in order to live life to the fullest. And if you don't do that, If you don't have this rich, happy sex life with many partners, then somehow your life has been wasted. And that the only way that you can possibly know whether or not you found the right one is if that person has the ability to seduce you out of your clothes at any given moment. Lies that that pervert intimacy between two united souls in the covenant bond of marriage that brings glory to God and joy to each other into selfishly using each other in rebellion to God for our own selfish 
physical pleasure. Lie after lie after lie. I mean, just turn on the TV. Just go to the movies. When you're checking out of the grocery store, just glance over the tabloids for a, for a moment or, or go to that cheap paperback section of the bookstore. You don't even have to go to the internet. Look up statistics on premarital sex, cohabitation, divorce, adultery. And what you will see and what you will hear will be lie after lie after lie after lie. Lies about intimacy, lies about passion, lies about sex, lies about beauty, lies about pleasure, lies about relationships. Well, friends, God gave us this wisdom so that we would not be seduced by all the lies, so that we would not fall prey to them. God gave us this word so that we would truly live life to its fullest, the life that God intended for us to live, lives that bring glory to God and bring true pleasure, true delight, true satisfaction, not momentarily, but eternally to our souls. Lives that are full of love, true love as God intended us to have it, not lust. So what we're going to see this morning from Proverbs chapter 6, verse 20, all the way through the end of chapter 7, is that God's wisdom guards our hearts so that we might truly find love. God's wisdom guards our hearts so that we might truly find love. Now let's turn our attention to the text. And as we do, I'm asking you to pray. I'm asking you to pray that you would know him and that you would love him and that through his word and through his spirit working on your hearts, you might come to truly find your desires found in him. Okay, so let's read Proverbs chapter 6, verses twenty through the end of chapter seven. It says, my son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I've looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple. I've perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, 
a woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linen from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He is gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces his liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol going down to the chambers of death. Now friends, just because this passage addresses adultery, I don't want you to tune this out because you think that that could never ever describe you. As I've gone through life and I've met those who have fallen into adultery, every one of them would say, I never thought that was possible for me. I never thought that I would end up there. Don't rule it out. Be very careful. Take heed lest you fall. But even more than that, and nevertheless, these truths that we find in this passage, they apply to any sexual sin, either either virtual or physical, premarital or extramarital. This even has much to say to that desire that we have for an intimate, loving relationship with another person, and whether you're single or married, and what you might be tempted to do in order to get it. So this has a lot to say to us. But here's ultimately what we need to consider. Why would someone be tempted to commit adultery? Have you ever thought about that? Why would somebody be tempted to commit adultery? Was well, because they're looking to satisfy some unmet desire in their heart that they do not believe can be met in their current condition. That's ultimately why. That there's something better out there that they're missing out on. There's some greater good that is being withheld from them. If they would just take it, they would be happy. Why should they stay here when that presents them so much more? This is why they do it. And so they look for love in all the wrong places. They seek to satisfy those desires through the wrong means. And as a result, they commit acts that they would never have thought themselves capable of. Now, rather than working straight through the text, my goal over these next two sermons is to answer three questions. I'm only going to deal with the first one today and deal with the other two next time, Lord willing. But here are the three questions I want to answer. One, why is sexual sin so appealing? Right, why is it so alluring? Second, why does sexual sin or what does sexual sin actually result in? It holds out all of these promises to us, but what does it actually give us? What is the fruit of it? And third, where can we turn to find our heart's true desires? Now, if I work straight through the text, I would come to the consequences first, but you know, we need to understand our hearts We need to understand why we're so drawn to this before we can look at the consequences and uh, the the alternatives to us. 
And so that's why I'm breaking it up the way I do. So question number one, why is sexual sin so appealing? I've got two answers for you. One is pre-fall, one is post-fall. We're going to spend most of our time in post-fall. But the pre-fall answer, answer number one, is because of God-given desires. Right? We were made with certain desires. Desires for love, desires for intimacy, desires for sex, desire for beauty. To one degree or another, there's this longing within each and every single human heart to delight in intimate relationship, body, and soul with another person. That's a good thing. We're not meant to live in autonomous isolation, but in loving fellowship. We're not meant to live at a distance, but with nearness. Not to withhold ourselves from other people, but to hold and to be held. It's there right in God's initial assessment of Adam in Genesis chapter 2. When God looked at Adam and he said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And you know the story, right? He presents all of the animals before. And what we see is that there's no part of God's creation would suffice. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh And that rib um, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said this, at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And friends, this was considered in the eyes of God to be very good. Very good. This passage shows us that these longings that we have for love and for intimacy, for companionship and for sex are part of God's good order, the way that he made each and every one of us. These are God-given desires. So does that mean then that we should just give ourselves over to those desires? I mean, after all, we were, we were made that way. I mean, why, why would you limit? Why would you withhold something that God gave us? Should we think, just like Simon Blackburn, the professor of philosophy at Cambridge University, that these desires, this lust that we have, is is actually a virtue? Well, no. I mean, God shows us in this passage the way that these desires were meant to be satisfied. In a covenant marriage united by God between one man and one woman, that reproduces, that grows to become the people of God's own possession who live in holy and righteous fellowship with God and with each other. That is how God intends for us to experience and live out these God-given desires. That's how they are to be met. What a man and his wife, uh, or I'm sorry, when a man and his wife delight in each other's love, This is a beautiful thing in the eyes of God. I mean, we have an entire book that's devoted to this in the Song of Solomon. It's a glorious thing. So what went wrong? We did. We went wrong. You see, we bought into the lie that God was withholding something good from us, something better than what we currently have. We bought into the lie That we don't need God or his design for us in order for us to live well. That life could actually be better without God and without his commands. We bought into the lie that every appetite that we experience is meant to be satisfied. That everything that is pleasurable can and must be experienced. And that by doing that, we better ourselves. We become more than what we currently are. That's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve when they sinned against God. Those were the same temptations that they faced. And that's what happens with us every time we are tempted to sin, regardless of what it is. Adultery, sexual sin, you name it. Even trying to satisfy that desire for love apart from God. 
We make these desires ultimate things. We make them more important, more necessary, more precious to us than God. And when we do that, those desires, no matter how good they are, they become twisted and they become gods to us. We live for them. Now, with that background in mind, let's move to our text and let's ask the question in light of the fall. Why is sexual sin so appealing? Why is it so alluring? Why does it seem to snare so many? Why is it all over the TV and internet? You can't get away from it. It seems like everybody's just giving themselves over to it. So why, if our culture doesn't see it as wrong, do we even bother fighting against it? Do you hear the hopelessness in those questions? Friends, the part, of, part of our hopelessness comes from the fact that we don't really know our enemies and we don't really know our hearts. And that's why I want to devote our time to answering this question. Good for us that we have Solomon to help us. And in verses 6 through 9, from the safety of his window, looking out through his lattice, Solomon gives us a secure vantage point from which to, to identify seven hooks, seven traps, seven lures for sexual sin that the adulteress uses to ensnare us in a false notion of love. She plays off of these heart-level desires that run deeper than sex. And thankfully, Solomon takes us to his window so that we can look down on this scenario of the seduction between this adulteress and this simple young man who lacks sense so that we can learn from him. Solomon shows us seven traps so that we won't find ourselves on that same street near her corner taking the road to her house in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness. So why is sexual sin so appealing? Answer two, Post-fall, because it uses seven lures to entice us. This passage presents us seven hooks for sexual sin. You see why I made it this, this one big, long sermon, right? Okay. Well, let's, let's deal with them, right? These seven hooks. First hook, pretty obvious. It is physical lust. Praise upon our physical lust. This is the one that we connect most with sexual sin. This attraction towards physical intimacy with another. The adulteress in chapter 6, verse 25, is described as beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that her eyelashes are ensnaring. Now, that's a beautiful woman. So beautiful that even her eyelashes will hook you in, right? I mean, there she is. She's a pinup with a perfect body, and that bombshell is looking at you the way that no one else ever has. In, verse, in chapter 7, verse 10, she's dressed like a prostitute. So not only is her clothing revealing of all that she has to offer you, they also communicate what her desires are. You don't have to wonder what she's about or why she's there on that corner. And so there she is. She's attractive. She's ready. She's available. And she's easy. I mean, how could you pass up such an opportunity? Well, friends... Again, this, this, we have this God-given desire for sex and appreciation for beauty. Our bodies are wired to release hormones when we see or even fantasize about sensual images. But those things are not ultimate. Though her appearance and behavior may appear intoxicating, they are outside of God's good purposes for us. And this is so important for us to get because we are bombarded by distorted images, distorted forms of beauty, hundreds, if not thousands of images every day. And what those images do, when we begin to see them, we look at one after the other, after the other, after the other, we begin to create comparisons in our mind. We start looking and making judgments. It's a consumer mentality that treat others as either pleasant or repulsive in my sight, Right? We're always looking, always evaluating, always judging. And what we do is we start grading them on a scale, a scale of hotness. And it creates pressure. It creates pressure within ourselves. It creates pressure within our culture. It creates pressure for everyone around us to always be looking to move up that scale and to avoid sliding down it. I mean, when we give ourselves over to these images... Even those things that are considered family-friendly, right? I mean, have you ever noticed 
how the Disney princesses are always really, really attractive. I mean, ask Matt Walters about this. He'll tell you. When we begin to look at even those family-friendly things, <laughs> people are wondering what that is. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. <laughs> Matt. Matt says he owes his, his love for Ruth in part to his, his favorable, uh, his, his, what was it, Aladdin, Jasmine, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ruth is Jasmine. You'll never look at her the same way again. Yeah. Sorry. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Sometimes filters don't always work, you know. Uh, But if we give ourselves over to these images, even, even images that are considered to be family friendly, it changes the way that we perceive other people. Rather than viewing them as a complete person, they become objects to satisfy our lusts. Pamela Paul, an editor and columnist, wrote, Because these sensual images involve looking at other people without interacting with them, it elevates the physical while ignoring or trivializing all other aspects of who they are. They are literally reduced to their body parts and sexual behavior. I like this body part of this person better than that one. Well, she has better legs than my wife. Well, he has much better abs than my husband. All the way down to the color of hair and the shape of eyes. We begin making these judgments, looking for the perfect one. And when somebody doesn't meet our exact desires, we move on to the next. Click, 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 click. It doesn't matter who they really are or what their character is like or the fact that God gave that person to you for companionship. What matters most is how attractive they are or how good they are in bed. Physical lust has become an idol then that we worship. Friends, do you understand that giving Ourselves over to physical lust wrecks our view of sex. It wrecks our view of marriage. It wrecks our view of true beauty. It wrecks men's views of women. A study by the American Psychological Association concluded that the sexualization of girls is not just shattering the lives of girls and women. It's preventing boys and young men from relating to girls and women as complex human beings with so much to offer them. It's preventing boys from forming healthy friendships and working relationships with girls and women. But even more than that, it wrecks women's views of themselves. How can a real woman with a real body that has been affected by age, and about bearing your children ever compete with the altered, airbrushed images of physical feminine perfection that are plastered all over the media. They can't. They won't. Those images are illusions. They're not even real. One article in the New Yorker stated, today, real naked women are just bad porn. And it's destroying them. Again, the same article from the American Psychological Association states that the saturation of sexualized images of females is leading to body hatred, eating disorders, low self-esteem, depression, high rates of teen pregnancy and unhealthy sexual development in our girl children. It also leads to impaired cognitive performance. In short, if we tell girls that looking hot is the only way to be validated rather than encouraging them to be active players in the world, they underperform in everything else. Friends, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 31, tell us what the real problem with physical lust is. 
in giving ourselves over to it, we exchange the truth about God for a lie, and we worship and serve the creature, our own sexual appetites and these images that we see upon screens rather than our creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, at its core, physical lust is a worship disorder. It's loving sex and body parts more than God and his people. Now, physical lust is the obvious hook, right? We, we get that. But it's not the only reason that we're tempted towards sexual sin. And in fact, it may not be the predominant reason that we are tempted towards sexual sin. There are six others in this text. They'll come much quicker. <clears throat> the second the sec, uh, hook that sexual sin preys upon is our pride. We want to feel desired. We want to be wanted. We want to be seen as attractive. We want to feel powerful. We want to feel important. We want to feel worthy of respect and recognition. And the adulteress in this passage, she's playing off of that. She's playing off of that desire, that pride. I mean, there she is. She is super hot. She's babelicious. If she was a president, she'd be Abraham Lincoln, right? And here she is, and she's looking longingly at you. Like, what? You're looking at me? Give it a double take just to make sure. You look behind to see if some attractive guy's back there. She's looking at you. I mean, talk about an ego booster. In chapter 6, verse 24, she's described as having a smooth tongue. She flatters you. She makes you feel so good about yourself, so important. In chapter 7, verse 5, she uses her smooth words to stroke your ego, saying to you in chapter 7, verse 15, Now I have come to meet you and to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. You are the one that I've been waiting for. You are the one who can completely complete me. You're the man of my dreams. You love me better than my spouse. You can love me better than anyone or anything else ever could. I want you. And verse 21 says, with much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. You see, our culture tells us that it's not simply enough to have your physical lust gratified it also matters who you are with, how many you are with, and how they make you feel about yourself. Pride, pride, and pride. This is also one of the reasons why fantasizing about relationships with other people or pornography is so appealing. Because it plays upon our pride and self-worship. We get to be the main character of the story that goes exactly according to my script. It plays out perfectly, and I'm the hero. And I get everything that I want. Here's this tantalizing person that you find so captivating and they want you. They find you irresistible and they will do whatever you want them to do. In real life, I feel worthless and unattractive, but in my mind or when I look at that screen and all those beautiful women are looking back at me or when that woman who is not my wife is talking to me, I feel like a god. My wife can't seem to stand me, but she makes me feel so good about myself. It preys upon our pride. It feeds upon our self-worship. She reinforces that sinful desire to worship myself. Physical lust is not the only reason that we fall into sexual sin or find it so appealing. Often, even a bigger draw to us is pride. A third hook, sexual sin, is passive pleasure. Look at chapter 7, verses 10 through 13. It says, and behold, the woman meets him 
dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face, she says to things, to him all of the things that he wants to hear. She is eager. She is waiting for him. He doesn't have to wonder what she's thinking. He doesn't have to work at communication with her. Her dress and her loud, seductive words make her agenda absolutely clear. She is forward. She is pursuing him. She is easy. She seizes him. She kisses him. And he can do all of that. He can have her without any commitment and without any effort on his own part. It's passive. It's easy. All he needs to do is follow her home and she will do the rest. You know, to want to embrace another, that's a good desire. Sexual pleasure is not evil all by itself. Right? God designed marriage as an expression of sexual pleasure. And back in chapter 5, do you remember that we were encouraged to rejoice in the wife of your youth? Let her fill you with delight at all times. Be intoxicated in her love. But God calls us not to seek sex alone, but to rather cultivate intimacy with your spouse. Marriage is a means of growing in companionship, maturing in virtue as a godly husband and a godly wife, and to become a man or a woman of character. It's meant to do more than just gratify your lusts. But the problem is is that we're lazy. We've got this bent towards passive pleasure. We fear, we hate commitment. Right? Godly marriage and sexual intimacy involves commitment. It involves pursuit. It involves intentionality and love and respect and even a little bit of romance. Marriage is about taking care of someone other than yourself. Or lust, lust is all about me. Getting my appetite satisfied right now. It requires no effort from me whatsoever. This is why fantasy and porn, the hookup culture, prostitution, and adultery are so alluring. They offer this quick fix, this shortcut to pleasure without virtue. And what it does is it ends up ripping sexual pleasure from its relational context and it creates a realm of fantasy where you can dabble in it at your own whim without any effort and any commitment. And guys, here's the big thing, right? It enables a man to feel like a man without requiring him to be one. It's a passive imitation of the real thing. It's a cheap McCoy. A fourth hook, sexual sin, alongside physical lust, pride, and passive pleasure, is the promise of escape. Sometimes we turn to sexual sin just to get away from hardships and difficulties in everyday life. Stressed out, need a break, here's where I go. Sometimes they treat it as a reward that you've earned. I worked hard, I deserve this. Or as a comfort that I need in order to relax. Look there at chapter 7 verses 14 through 17. The adulteress says, I had to offer sacrifices and today I've paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly and I've found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linen, fine from from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. 
What she's doing here is she is inviting him to experience comfort, ease, and delight. She is leading him to believe that she's all caught up on religion, that she's paid her vows. She's offered her sacrifices to God, and so God's not going to hold this against us because I've paid for it. As if you could buy God off in that way, or that God's grace could be perverted into licentiousness so that we can live and do whatever we want. But having offered sacrifices also meant that she had plenty of meat, a luxury at the time. She was offering him a feast. Having couches covered with fine linens and perfumes would indicate that she's wealthy. So this guy, he's got it made. I mean, here's a gorgeous woman, a delicious feast, a luxurious setting, exotic experiences, all waiting just for him. She is offering him a paradise. Why not wind down or take a break? I mean, he owes it to himself. I deserve a little bit of reward. Outside, the world is reeling. It seems like it's out of control, but sexual sin is this little bit of paradise that I can control if even just for a moment. Things at home are a wreck. But this woman is offering me a palace. Here I can forget about all my worries, all my dissatisfactions, all of those things that I'm discontent with and just enjoy life for a few minutes. There may even be a little bit of revenge there. Maybe he's frustrated with his wife and he's there on that corner near her house because he knows at least she will treat him right. So he rejects the God who made him and the good gifts that he has been given in the belief that what she offers to him in that dark place is better. Friends, there's there's a longing within each of us to return to Eden, to return to this, this state before the curse and decay of sin entered into human existence. We long for the pleasures of paradise. Now, the gospel promises us that one day we will be fully restored to God and to each other, living in paradise once again, even better than what Adam and Eve ever had. It shows us how we were made for peace and for joy in God, but we ruined it by chasing after other things. But in spite of all that, because God is merciful and loving, he sent his son to live a perfect life, a life that you and I can never live. And Christ laid down that life by dying on a cross for sin, not just to pay for the consequences of my sin, but he rose to new life so that I might have power over the sin that once controlled me. He, when we receive him by faith, We receive the Holy Spirit to live within our hearts as a foretaste of this hope, of this eternal blessedness that we will experience. And and he's there to help us to find our heart's true delight in God and in his purposes rather than in the fleeting pleasures of this world. But when we experience the stress of life, when we are bombarded with this fallen condition, our sinful hearts don't always retreat to that hope. Instead, we retreat by making temporary Edens that we can escape to, these tiny little paradises that we can control, paradises not centered on God, but on ourselves, because we fail to believe that what God has given us right here and right now is for my best. We turn to rubbish for reward rather than the one who is our rock and our refuge. Sexual sin is just another one of those man-made paradises that lure us with this false hope of comfort and escape. But friends, it's a prison, not a refuge. It's a curse and not a reward. It only serves to keep us from the one who is. A fifth hook of sexual sin 
is the illusion of secrecy. In addition to the foolish thought that she could buy the grace of God and so that God won't mind her sin is the lie that no one else will ever have to know. Look there at chapter 7, verses 19 and 20. It says, For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. It's as if she's saying, listen, don't, don't worry about it. There's no fear in us getting caught. No one has to know. My friends, let's just think about this for a minute. If she can't be faithful to her husband, if she can't keep her promise to him, why on earth would she ever be faithful to keeping this promise to you? She won't. But even more than that, even if you try to keep your sin hidden, Maybe people don't know exactly what it is, but people know that something's up. We're just not that good, right? They know that we are withholding something in our hearts. It's evident that you are not completely disclosing yourself. And what it does is it creates a wall. It creates a barrier in your relationships that you seek to hide behind. This illusion of secrecy is one of the reasons why pornography is so popular. I mean, one man wrote about his struggle with pornography by saying, no girl I knew in real life would ever look at me like that. So comforting and so accepting. They didn't judge me. They loved me for who I was. This was my special world. And I decided for me that I was going to do all that I could to keep it a secret from everyone. Pornography, premarital sex, adultery, all of them thrive off of secrecy. You notice that it doesn't work if it's not secret. It works if it's secret, or so we think. Makes it more exciting, makes it more passionate. Uh, Al Cooper coined the phrase AAA engine to describe pornography and the cyber sex addiction. He said it's affordable, it's super cheap, it's accessible. You can get it anywhere you want on your computer or on your phone. Gone are the days of having to go out in public to get what you want. And it's anonymous. No one has to know what we see. But friends, even our children know, where is God? God is everywhere. God knows every thought and intention of our hearts. There is nothing that is hidden from his sight. Secrecy is an illusion. It's a sham. God knows and people know that you are withholding. But here's something else. That desire for secrecy shows us something about our hearts that there is a deeply rooted belief that there are some aspects of life that we can totally have as our own, that there are some areas of our lives that we can rule over outside of God's sovereign gaze, some small little kingdom that we can keep to ourselves where we get to play by our own rules. But in order to live in that deception, in order to live in that illusion, we need secrecy. We desire anonymity because exposure shatters the illusion that our decisions affect no one else but us. We'd like to think that these dirty little secrets aren't hurting anyone, but the simple fact that you're trying to hide them is proof that they do. You know what would happen if you told your wife. You would know what would happen if you talked to your parents. You know what would happen if you told your friends or you told the people in your church. So we hide it. Friends, is your life an open book? Or are there things that you seek to keep hidden from other people? Do you love this little world of secrets that you've made? Have you been hiding your coveted sins? Or have you exposed them? Do you really love darkness more than you love the light? 
Friends, I, I hope by now you're able to see that there is far more to sexual sin than just physical lust. And I can only pray that God is revealing to us all other longings of our heart that sexual sin preys upon. But a sixth hook of sexual sin from this text is false intimacy. You see, we have this deep motivation for love and acceptance. We fear being alone and rejected. We long to have people see us for who we truly are and to love and accept us for who we truly are. But we know, we know deep down that we're not lovely. We know that there's this stain of sin, right? This ugliness within our hearts that plagues us. And so what do we do? We want to hide. I'm not lovely. And though I want intimacy, I fear exposure. So what do I do? Well, we resort to a false imitation of intimacy, right? Just enough to get us by for the moment. Sexual sin allows us to have a part of physical intimacy without the effort at real intimacy or the need to disclose my own heart, That's why chapter 6, verse 26 says, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread. It's it's a cheap, easy way to get by a semblance of intimacy without the cost of my heart. Even the adulteress there in chapter 7, verse 10, longs for intimacy without revealing her true self. It says that she is wily of heart. She hides her heart. She keeps her heart from you. Just like pretty woman, she's open with her body, but she guards and hides her heart. In chapter 7, verse 18, she says to him, come. Let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. This is that 50 shades of gray or Kama Sutra notion of intimacy that that can be found somehow through erotic ecstasy or exploring the physics of sex in all of its forms apart from spiritual and emotional union. As if intimacy can be found simply by trying new and different things, no matter how aggressive or abusive or damaging they might be. She's saying, you can do to me whatever you want all night long. I will do for you what your wife would never do for you. That's what she's saying. But friends, that is not intimacy. To have the full sexual relationship with someone is to give physical expression to a covenanted relationship that is stable, faithful, and permanent. To say physically, I am giving myself to you while emotionally and spiritually holding back from a covenant commitment is in fact to live a lie. It is a split in our personality which is ultimately stressful and destructive. You cannot detach sex from relationship and intimacy. There's always been, it's always meant to be more than simply physical activity. It is a mingling of souls. As Tim Chester in his book, Closing the Window, writes, real sex, sex as God intended, is the celebration and climax, quite literally, of a relationship. Godly sex is part of a package that includes talking together, sharing together, deciding together, crying together, working together, laughing together, and forgiving each other. Climax comes at the end of a process that began with offering a compliment, doing chores, recalling your day, unburdening your heart, tidying the house. Sex that disregards these things is hollow. It will drive you apart rather than bring you together as God intended. If you view sex as personal gratification or a chance to enact your fantasy, even if you, have, uh, if you have sex while disregarding intimacy or unresolved conflict, then that sex will be bad in both senses of the word, poor quality and ungodly. You see, true intimacy requires effort. It takes time. True intimacy 
requires disclosure. True intimacy seeks to please the other person, not use them for your own personal satisfaction. And anything less is a poor substitute for intimacy. It's do not buy into the lie that you can take your fill of love without commitment, without sacrifice, without completely giving your heart to another. It's just not true. One final hook. One final reason why sexual sin is so appealing is simply because it is forbidden. Chapter 6, verse 24, Solomon reminds us that God has given us this wisdom to preserve us from the evil person, from the smooth tongue of the tempter. Because this is evil. It's a perversion of the good gift that God has given us. Let's not be deceived by the lies of temptation. In chapter 7, verse 5, we have God's commands and teaching. We have this spiritual wisdom, this divine insight given to us to keep us from the forbidden person with their smooth words. They are not yours to know. They belong to someone else. Even if she's unmarried and you're unmarried, she belongs to God. She still belongs to her family. She's not yours. God tells us that they are off limits to us. So what does that do when God tells us that something is off limits to us? What happens when you tell your kids, don't touch that, don't do that? What does Paul say in Romans chapter 7? The law stirs up all kinds of covetousness in us. We want it all the more. It fuels us, it drives us, it motivates us, it, it, it kicks our desires into overdrive and produces this covetousness in us, makes us want us even more simply because it's forbidden. doesn't mean that it's necessarily better, it's just forbidden, therefore I want it. I want it because you have it and I don't. In our sin, we want what we should not have. You see, at the core of our being, we are rebels and haters to God. We long for the things that God withholds, not because they are better, but simply because they are forbidden. So these are the seven hooks that pull us towards sexual sin. There's not just one. In fact, many, if not all, are at play, just as it was with this young man in this story, and quite possibly you'll find that some of those hooks that you never considered are, are your primary lure, one that draws you more than anything towards it. The enticement of physical beauty and sexual gratification, the pride of her apparent desire for him, the promise of pleasure without personal commitment or cost, the offer of escape, reward, or comfort, the allure of secrecy, the promise of intimacy without disclosure. And his heart is grabbed by the thought of being able to experience forbidden pleasures. But you know, this is Solomon talking to us. Solomon tells us from his own personal experience in the book of Ecclesiastes that all these things are empty promises. They're all lies. They all can't satisfy. It's vanity. It's empty. It's chasing after the wind. They don't give us what they promise. They cannot truly satisfy. But you know, there is a love that can truly satisfy our every longing, a love that can change our sinful hearts, a love that can forgive us of every single sin. And Solomon's father, David, who committed adultery with Solomon's mother, Bathsheba, experienced this. And he wrote about it, having repented of his sexual sin and having placed his trust in God's promise of redemption, he wrote these words in Psalm 103. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Friends, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die so that we might be forgiven. He rose to free us from the power, from the enslavement, from the entanglements of sin. God made us his beloved children. He gave us his word, his Holy Spirit to lead us to him. He offers us the hope of eternal life a life that we were made to live, a life with him. Friends, nothing can compare to what God offers us in Christ. There is nothing to lose and everything to gain. So you see, God's wisdom guards our hearts so that we might truly find love. Would you receive his true love this morning? you pray with me?